Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Colin Quinn. We'll start, as we always do, with the region's news. In North Korea, a Canadian pastor was sentenced to life in prison. Toronto-based Reverend Hyun Soo Lim was apprehended in February and charged with anti-North Korean religious activities this week. Lim's family appealed for his release and said he had previously travelled to North Korea over 100 times since the late 1980s for humanitarian aid projects. In Washington, the Obama administration formally authorised a long-pending arms sale package to Taiwan. The almost $2 billion package includes two frigates, amphibious assault vehicles and a variety of missile systems. In response, the Chinese government contacted the U.S. Embassy in Beijing to protest the decision. In Tokyo, Japan's Supreme Court upheld a century-old law that prohibits the use of different surnames for married couples. The decision was protested by women's groups that argue the law negatively affects life planning for women in Japanese society. The court did find a provision that requires that women wait at least 100 days to remarry following a divorce is unconstitutional. In New Delhi, Environment Minister Prakash Javadakar argued that India managed to protect part of its core negotiating position, space to develop its economy, in the recent Paris Agreement of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Javadakar stated that recognition by richer countries of the struggle for poorer countries to develop, while also implementing efforts to protect the environment, is critical and will require new access to low-cost green technology. In Bangkok, a US government official met with Thai Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha, and stated that democracy must be restored for relations between the two longtime allies to flourish and return to previous levels. Assistant Secretary of State Danny Russell also told former General Prayat that the United States remains concerned about the human rights situation in Thailand following the May 2014 military coup. And that's the news. In our feature topic this week, we turn to the future strategy for the land down under, Australia. In the United States, discussion of Australia tends to centre on the country's robust alliance with the US and its role as a Western democracy in the Asia-Pacific. Yet Australia has its own multifaceted geopolitical challenges and unique domestic political landscape to reconcile as it faces key strategic choices related to defence, diplomacy and economics in the near future. To help us understand Australia's strategy, we spoke with CSIS Asia Programme Distinguished Visiting Fellow Andrew Shearer, a former Australian National Security Advisor and former Director of Studies at the Lowy Institute for International Policy in Sydney. Andrew talked to my colleague and Cogitage Editor, Jeff Bean. Hi, my name is Jeff Bean, Editor of the CSIS Asia Policy Blog, Cogit Asia. My guest today is Andrew Shearer, formerly the Australian Government and former Director of Studies at the Lowy Institute. As Colm outlined, our topic today is Australia's strategic future. Andrew, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. It's great to be here. Andrew, as we look ahead for Australia's future, could you identify what are some of the key strategic choices that uh, Canberra faces over the next few years? I think the first strategic choice is really how we can best respond to the challenge of terrorism, both both at home and, and abroad. And as recent events in Paris and San Bernardino have shown us, this is very much a, a shared challenge that we're all grappling with together. In Australia, in just over a year, we've had three terrorist attacks. We've had about another six planned attacks that were disrupted by good law enforcement and intelligence work. There are something like 400 high-priority counter-terrorism investigations still 
underway. Just um, just before I, I came, I was looking, glancing at the media back home, and I noticed that there are plans to put a security, offense, uh, security fence around the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which is one of our most iconic sporting venues. Um, and I guess that's a, a very much a sign of the time. Uh, when I was in government, we responded pretty vigorously to this. We, we put in place uh, new counter-terrorism laws. We gave new resources to our counter-terrorism agencies. And back home, as here, there's a very lively debate playing out around how best to respond. How do we respond in terms of fighting terrorism offshore in Syria and Iraq? And how do we respond at home? Um, what's the place of... Uh, uh, Islam and all of this, how do we engage with our Islamic communities most effectively and, um, and how can we grapple with the threat? The second uh, strategic choice, I think, is around uh, regional security, where Australia faces a much more contested security environment in our part of the world than I think we have really since, perhaps since the end of the Second World War. Um, this is very much about the rise of China, but it's not only about the rise of China. Uh, we're responding quite actively to that. There's a major reinvestment going on in um, Australian defence capability. We're growing our defence budget from about $25 billion a year to something like $45 billion a year over the next decade. We'll be bringing down a new defence white paper in Australia uh, probably in the new year which will have much more emphasis on maritime capabilities, a larger fleet of submarines, a, a larger, more capable fleet of surface warships as well. We've been working to strengthen the US alliance through the Force Posture Initiative, rotating US Marines through Darwin and US um, Air Force uh, platforms as well. And we've also been diversifying our other strategic partnerships, in particular with Japan, but also with India. And lastly, we've been stepping up our efforts to build the capacity of our regional partners in Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. And then just very briefly, I think the third major strategic choice, and this may sound like a strange one, is really about our economy. Um, but you can't have uh, a strong strategy that's properly resourced without a strong economy. And therefore, I think a huge challenge is uh, putting in place the economic reforms to, to underpin continuing growth in Australia, where we've had the mining boom pass through. Our, our economy is now going through quite a, a painful transition as the price of iron ore has dropped from something like, I think, $170 a tonne to about $35 a tonne. That's been a massive hit on our revenues um, and economic growth in Australia seems to have slowed down to a, to a lower... Uh, rate of normal growth, national income has been falling per capita, so there's quite a squeeze uh, on our middle class, and government's going to have to face up to the economic reforms we need to get the economy growing strongly, and that's about um, difficult things like tackling uh, the cost of uh, social welfare and health spending and ensuring we've got a more flexible labour force. You mentioned uh, as one of those choices the relationship uh, in the context of defense uh, and uh, diplomacy, the relationship with China. You also mentioned the economic concerns. How should future governments of Australia approach the relationship 
with China to satisfy Canberra's sort of unique interest given the critical blend of security and economic concerns that you outlined? The first thing to say there is that um, China is massively important to Australia, uh, particularly economically. It's our largest trading partner. Uh, we do something like $160 billion of trade each year and about $100 billion of that is Australian goods and services exports to China. So it's hugely important. And, you know, when you poll the Australian public, they understand this. Um, I think about three quarters of Australians say that China is our most important economic partner and understand that, uh, that that's likely to continue. At the same time, though, I think there is uh, some disquiet about China and the role that it seems to be playing at the moment and if you like it's increasing assertiveness this obviously plays out in the South China Sea uh, in cyber intrusions and also in some domestic concern in Australia about Chinese uh, investment uh, recently there's been this high profile debate about the long-term lease of a commercial port in Darwin Right. to Chinese interests, for example. Um, I think something like 60% of Australians believe that China's long-term goal is to dominate East, um, East Asia. So, you know, there's this kind of bifurcation in Australian attitudes towards China, um, both, um, both a po very strong positive aspect around economic engagement and also a degree of concern about some of China's diplomatic and strategic behaviour. I think when it comes to how we should approach that, there's actually a, a reasonably solid bipartisan uh, consensus in Australia. There is a bit of debate about whether our strong US alliance is, is incompatible with, uh, with our China relationship, but I would characterise that really as a, an outlier view I think uh, in our national security community and in government, both sides of Australian politics, uh, there's a view that we should work closely with China where we can, especially on economic issues. And I think a good example of that recently is our attitude to the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where uh, Australia took a different position from the United States and also Japan, which is a hugely important partner of ours as well, and ultimately decided to join the bank, but only after certain concerns we had about the bank's governance uh, governance arrangements were, were addressed. So I think you know that's an example of us working constructively with China in the interests of both countries and the broader region. But then where there are differences with China, and we do have differences over a range of issues, human rights questions, um, uh, some other questions of, of international governance, and certainly about some of its recent behaviour in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, I think it's very important that we're clear and consistent with, with Beijing. And again, we've, I think, demonstrated that. We, the Australian government was very, very forthright when uh, China declared the air defence identification zone in the East China Sea, for example, and just recently you've seen in the media that the Royal Australian Air Force flew its own uh, freedom of navigation uh, operation in the South China Sea. So I think it's important that 
that we do continue to state our principal position um, clearly with the Chinese. I also think that Australian governments will continue to further strengthen our alliance with the United States. Uh, we need to get on with implementing the Force Posture Initiative in Darwin. Uh, we need to think creatively about other ways we can strengthen the alliance. And I think uh, Australian governments will continue to work with other partners like Japan and India in supporting a rules-based order in our region. So I think they're the key elements of an approach that has been proven to work in the past and can continue working in the future. Thanks, Andrew. I want to turn now to one of Australia's near neighbours, or nearest neighbour in some ways. Australia's relationship with Indonesia has hit an extended rough patch, uh, stretching across the leadership of successive governments in both countries, both the, the, you know, sort of the last three or four leaders in, in Australia, as well as the transition between SBY and uh, Joko, Jokowi uh, Widodo. Is it important for both countries to get this relationship back on track, in your view, and, and why or why not? Look, the political uh, relationship between the two countries is important. There's no doubt about that. Um, historically, though, I think it's interesting. You know, this has been a difficult relationship, despite the fact that Australia gave very strong support to Indonesia's push for independence, uh, you know, decades ago. Uh, there has often been turbulence in the relationship between the two governments. Um, I think that's largely because these are two very, very different uh, countries, uh, different stages of economic development, different, uh, different populations, different sizes, uh, and yet in very, very close proximity. Um, what, what you see if you look closely at the polling in both countries is disappointingly low levels of mutual understanding, uh, mutual trust, perhaps even mutual respect. And what that means is that it's very easy for issues such as the Snowden disclosures or capital punishment um, when it's carried out by Indonesia or even issues like the treatment of, um, of animals in Indonesian slaughterhouses, things like that, to capture the public, admin, uh, public imagination in, in either country or both countries and become very difficult for, for the governments to, to manage. I think what's really important, though, is that even through those differences and difficulties at the political level, at the, at the sort of working level, relationships are actually pretty strong. Cooperation on issues, particularly such as counter-terrorism and law enforcement and tackling transnational crime together, has tended to sort of continue below the radar, even though things have been a bit difficult at the, at the highest levels of government. And I, I just think that's, that's critically important when you look at um, things like the threat of terrorism, where I, I fear that, um, that terrorism is going to uh, become a greater problem in Southeast Asia with the return of some of the hundreds of foreign fighters from the region who are currently in Iraq and Syria. They'll come back better trained, hardened, more violent. 
Um, and also the release of, of many terrorists from jail as their sentences expire in Indonesia um, from offences dating back to the, the Bali bombings. So I, I do worry about, if you like, the, the emergence of a Jamar Islamia 2.0, and I think that's going to be a huge challenge for, for Indonesia, first and foremost, but also for, for Australia and Indonesia's other friends and neighbours to help it with. So I think in terms of developing a, a better, more stable relationship, the governments obviously have to keep working at it, but perhaps more important, we need a stronger economic relationship. Um, there's actually a surprisingly low base of trade and investment between the two countries, but as Indonesia's enormous middle class emerges and grows, there are opportunities there for Australia in terms of providing skills and services and training, education, investment. And the other part of this, I think, that's really important for tackling this kind of mutual trust deficit is people-to-people -people links with, you know, more young Australians in particular visiting Indonesia, uh, education exchanges in both directions. And to me, that's the best way to erode this problem over time. Um, but I don't think there's a kind of silver bullet that either government can, can fire to, to make, this, uh, make this better overnight. I want to turn to a topic that many listeners will be familiar with, I think, in, a, in an abstract sense. Australians have, a, uh, Australians have a really specific and dynamic brand of soft power around the world to sort of pull from everything from... Uh, advertisements to entertainment to uh, tourism destinations. What, if anything, is being done to sort of continue that position or perpetuate that that success uh, from Australia? And uh, if if anything needs to be done or or not, in your view. And in addition to that, what what lessons should countries that that are trying to build their own base of soft power draw from uh, the success of uh, Australia's success? Um, in building its own sort of cachet of cultural attraction? I guess my own view on this is that soft power is, is largely innate to our societies rather than something which is, is created by governments or, or greatly influenced by governments. I mean, thinking about the United States, I think America still has massive soft power and it's because of your, your national story and your, your identity, your values institutions like Hollywood which which really radiate out around the world and when you when you look at Australia there are some some common elements there too I mean we're a we're a very successful prosperous diverse tolerant nation um, a country which is proud of its origins but also I think optimistic fundamentally about having a bright future in the Indo-Pacific region, which is obviously the world's most dynamic region, and that should be a source of confidence for Australia rather than a, a source of trepidation if we get our policies right. I think there are a couple of things government can do, and um, I might just mention a couple of initiatives of the, of the Abbott government here, which were very much increasing our kind of connectivity, if you like, with that, with that burgeoning region. The first one is the um, is the New Colombo Plan, which is a sort of echo of Australia's historical role in bringing uh, future economic and political leaders from all, all around Southeast Asia to study at Australian universities, which really uh, 
has created this massive network of sort of, if you like, Australia alumni who have risen often to the highest levels of their respective societies and been champions or ambassadors for, for relationships with, with Australia. In this case, what we're doing is reversing that process and sending young Australians to study or to work or intern uh, with businesses or agencies or um, civil society groups uh, all around Asia. So I think 32 different locations and so far 10,000 young Australians have had this, ha had this experience of immersion in a, in a nearby uh, society and the hope there is obviously that that will forge much stronger people-to-people -people links in the future. The other thing that we did was to make a significant reinvestment in our diplomatic network, which frankly had been under-resourced by both, both uh, sides of Australian politics when they were in government over, over several decades. And in particular, we've expanded our, uh, our diplomatic footprint in uh, regional parts of India and also of China and Indonesia with a view to tapping into some of these new centres of growth, uh, very dynamic societies, and starting to build these people-to-people -people links and these economic links that we've been talking about. Andrew Shearer, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And that was Andrew Shearer. In our One to Watch this week, we examine the US military's longest-running humanitarian relief mission, providing support to the Pacific Islands during the December holidays. In 1952, the crew of a Guam-based Air Force aircrew noticed residents of a remote island in the Marianas, waving at them as they flew overhead the week before Christmas. The Air Force crew gathered a few items they had in the plane, attached them to a parachute, and dropped them to the islanders. Subsequently, annual Operation Christmas Drop missions have delivered more than £800,000 of supplies, including food, medicine, fishing tackle, and snorkelling equipment to the residents of Micronesia, the Marianas Islands, and Palau. Part of the funding for the relief supplies is raised via charities in Guam and other Pacific territories, as well as the state of Hawaii. This year's Christmas drop reflected trilateral cooperation with the Japanese and Australian Air Forces for the first time. Tokyo and Canberra each sent a C-130 aircraft full of cargo to join three from the United States. Each package also included a holiday toy and new soccer ball. And that's our show for this week. You can always find more at cogitasia.com and csis.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also check out our island tracker and maritime-specific analysis on the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative or AMTI microsite. I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>